Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the 213th mass shooting in America so far this year that has left 19 elementary school children and two teachers dead, with 17 wounded at the hands of a troubled teenager who just bought two assault rifles and 375 rounds of ammunition for his 18th birthday. Joining us to describe the town of Uvalde and its people and the elementary school with 90% of the student Hispanic and 80% from economically disadvantaged homes is Lydia Camarillo, the president of the Southwest Voter Registration Education Project, a national nonprofit nonpartisan organization based out of San Antonio, Texas. She plays a key role in developing the tactical strategies of the SVREP nonpartisan voter registration, voter education, and get out the vote campaigns. Prior to joining SVREP, Camarillo served as the national director of the leadership development program for the Mexican American Legal Defense and Education Fund. And we will discuss how blaming mental health, not guns, is not surprising since Governor Abbott and Senator Cruz, along with former President Trump, are scheduled to speak at the NRA convention on Friday in Houston. Then with the press conference today featuring Texas's Republican leaders, at which Governor Abbott focused on mental health, not the availability of military-style weapons in the hands of teenagers, we will speak with Jonathan Metzel, Professor of Sociology and Psychiatry at Vanderbilt University and the director of its Center for Medicine, Health and Society. He is the author of several books and a prominent expert on gun violence and mental illness. And his latest book is Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. And we will discuss how, in order to get a driver's license, you must pass a test. But to own a weapon of war, you need nothing but the money the gun manufacturers are charging. Then finally, we'll examine the highly partisan politics of the southern border and the Biden administration's policy of trying to deal with the problem of immigration from Central America at its roots in these poor and lawless countries led by corrupt leaders tied to drug trafficking. Joining us is Joe Marie Burt, a senior fellow at the Washington Office for Latin America and a professor of political science and Latin American studies at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, who has published widely on political violence, state-society relations, human rights, and transitional justice in Latin America. A research consultant for the Open Society Justice Initiative, she writes about war crimes prosecutions in Guatemala for the International Justice Monitor. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible.
And joining us now is Lydia Camarillo, who is the president of the Southwest Voter Registration Education Project, a national nonprofit, nonpartisan organization based out of San Antonio, Texas. She plays a key role in developing the tactical strategies for the SVREP, nonpartisan voter registration, voter education, and get out the vote campaigns. And prior to joining SVREP, Camarillo served as the national director of the leadership development program for the Mexican American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lydia Camarillo. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, Lydia. And you're in San Antonio, which is what, 90 miles to the west of you is the town of Uvalde, where this horrible massacre took place. I've been trying to read up on it. Uh, It's the hometown of Matthew McConaughey, for what that's worth. He was toying with entering politics, I understand. But describe the town as you know it, uh, Lydia. It's it's a small town west on on I, uh, US ninety west from San Antonio south, so it's southwest, uh, and it's a small town of twenty thousand people. The majority are Latino. It is not a hundred percent Latino, but it is about eighty five percent Latino, uh, and it is uh, a rural community of people that frankly know each other, and the school where the massacre occurred uh, is is one of the schools where children that are 10, 11, 12, it's an elementary school where this incident happened. It's a, it's a, it's a sad day in America where we have to talk about children being killed again. This is not the first time that we, we hear about children being murdered. Uh, this is the first time in a long time, though, that they were killed by one of their own, if you will, Salvador is uh, Romo is a Latino. He was apparently bullied. I'm not excusing what he did, uh, nor suggesting that we should. But it sounds like, um, unlike what happened in El Paso in Odessa, where we were, where those were clear uh, domestic terrorist uh, actions, this is the uh, action of an evil young person who didn't know better. Uh, and I'm not excusing him, and I'm just, um, I feel a sense of helplessness right now uh, because, once again, families are going to bury their children, and I can't imagine any one of us who have children uh, having to worry about whether ours survived or not. Uh, and that is not what we're supposed to be doing in America. We're supposed to be sending our children and uh, to secure places so they can learn and and become the future of, of this country. And instead, uh, the laws at the federal level and at the state of Texas uh, are allowing for these things to happen. As you know, uh, the Republicans in Texas are set uh, clear on passing uh, gun laws that allows for anyone who has a license to have not only carry guns openly, but also they can buy uh, arsenal, the kind of arsenal that killed uh, the children yesterday in uh, Uvalde, as well as El Paso and Odessa and other parts of the country uh, that are frankly weapons of war and mass destruction. They are not the kinds of guns that I'm sure when the Constitu- when the amendment, Second Amendment was being written, included those kinds of guns. Well, first of all, they didn't exist. But second, I don't think that they imagined that we should be using those kinds of guns and anyone could have access to them. 
And again, I'm speaking with Lydia Camarillo, who serves as the president of the Southwest Voter Registration Education Project, a national nonprofit, nonpartisan organization based out of San Antonio, Texas. She plays a key role in developing the tactical strategies for the SVREP nonpartisan voter registration, voter education, and get out the vote campaigns. And before and prior to joining SVREP, Camarillo serves as the national director of the Leadership Development Program for the Mexican American Legal Defense and Education Fund. So, Lydia, did you happen to watch the press conference that Governor Abbott had along with his lieutenant governor and Ted Cruz and other officials? I mean, it was largely self-serving, and uh, they avoided any talk about guns and gun control. And, in fact, Abbott was asked whether he was going to be a keynote speaker on Friday in Houston at the annual NRA convention, which President ex-President Trump is going to, and so is Ted Cruz, who was also standing there on the stage. So he didn't. He just didn't answer that question because his heart is hurting and his heart is heavy. And that's all they talked about, how terrible it all is and how they feel so bad for the people and the victims and the families. Uh, 21, 19 school children killed, two teachers, 17 wounded. It's a horrible, horrible thing. But why don't we talk about what causes it, how it happened. I mean, these people were killed by military weapons, and how how could it be prevented? Uh, and, and in fact, the police spokesperson there was also covering up for the fact that the police didn't seem to handle it very well. And it took, the, finally, the Border Patrol came in at the last minute after he'd barricaded himself in and kept shooting kids. So there's a lot to be answered here, but I didn't hear one answer from that press conference, which Beto O'Rourke crashed and they've finally evicted him. But he was demanding that they do something except thoughts and prayers and hand-wringing rhetoric. Well, I think I think that those of us that are not only tired of seeing um, this kind of actions take place, uh, and I use the word tired because I can't think of another word. I'm, we're angry, we're upset. Uh, I, it shouldn't be happening in America where we send our children to get a, an education and we believe when we drop them off that they're in a safe place when in fact they're not. Uh, I did not get to see the press conference, but I've been reading about it and uh, I'm not surprised that uh, all of them went on stage. Uh, and when I say all of them, I mean Abbott, Ted Cruz, the lieutenant governor, all of the Republicans who uh, want to stand there because it's an election year and show up uh, in Uvalde and, 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 and talk about how they are hurting. If they were truly hurting, they would have already passed laws that prohibit these kinds of weapons of mass destruction to be um, purchased by anyone. Uh, and, and they're not doing that. And they're not going to do that because they are uh, supported by the NRA. It's ironic that the NRA is going to be in, in Houston on Friday, and I'm not surprised uh, if the governor shows up to keynote it because he is uh, supported widely and, and uh, he gets eight pluses from the NRA, much like Ted Cruz and the lieutenant governor. They are uh, bought by the NRA lobby, and as long as they're bought by NRA lobby and the lobby, and they have lots of money to fight. Uh, these kinds of things. We need at the federal level 10 senators so that the 
the bill that did pass on the House can pass in the Senate with all the 50 plus uh, uh, plus the vice president. We need at least 10 to make that into law. Will we find 10 Republicans who have the courage to go against the NRA? No, I don't believe so. I hope I'm wrong. It's time to take action. We, we can't have another situation where another group of young children, the future of our country, our nation, are murdered. And this is a, 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 a mass murder that shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have happened not, not because if, if we were doing the right thing, it wouldn't have happened. So we have to uh, find a way to control guns, to make sure that people get uh, some kind of serious uh, testing to see if they if they qualify for having the guns. And also, I think we need to spend more money on health care. Uh, this young man was bullied, apparently. Something went wrong in his house. He was bullied because he was poor and he didn't have the right clothes, according to things I've read. I don't know how much of that is real or exaggeration. Uh, but these things do happen. People are being uh, attacked. And obviously, for him to do this kind of thing, which was clearly evil, means something was going wrong and more than likely something mental. And we need some health issues to be taken care of as well. As you know, the state of Texas, among other things, for relaxing the gun control and allowing anyone to carry a gun, and it's an open, open uh you can carry a gun if you want to. It's an open carry law that Texas has. But it also refuses to take the kinds of resources that one needs to have good health care and good medical health care and good mental health in the state of Texas. It's one of the states that has rejected resources related to health care when uh, the Obama uh, care took place. So it's a state that is uh, uh, clearly governed by Republicans who care only about their future and protecting their lobbyists. And this, of course, in the uh, press conference, it was made clear that the last thing they want to talk about was guns. And they kept talking about, in fact, Abbott said that this is really about mental health, not about guns, as though they're mutually exclusive. President Biden said, of course, to lose a child is like having a piece of your soul ripped away. And it is horrendous to think about what these families are, are going through. And there was a lot of talk about that from these people on stage. But what are they doing about the real issues? I mean, you mentioned that the town of Uvalde, it's apparently 90% of the students at this uh, Rob Elementary School are Hispanic, and about 81% of them are economically disadvantaged. So what are they doing about that, apart from thoughts and prayers? They're not doing anything. Uh, they, the Republican agenda in Texas is no different than the Republican agenda that Trump has, which is close the borders, um, no health care, no, um, no increase in wages, no uh, continue to have uh, the ability to have uh, guns at your will, uh, the ability not to vote. By the way, um, while I don't think we should be discussing politics in the in in light of these children dying, it is going to be political, and it is going to be up to all of us uh, and to those who have the power to vote them out. Changes happen when you have a different group of 
elected officials who care about these things. And as long as uh, Abbott and uh, the lieutenant governor continue to control Texas, it will be the, the NRA that controls the, the way that we handle guns in Texas. The same with, um, uh, obviously, Ted Cruz uh, is not up until the next cycle uh, again. And, and when he's up... Uh, someone has to challenge him because uh, the kinds of things that he's are, he's saying in this round of attacks of these children are, are ridiculous. And you're right. They're only focusing on prayer, and we all need prayer. But prayer is just not enough. And if God were here, he'd tell us it's not enough. Well, Lydia Camarillo, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, and... Uh, I think the families are going to need uh, resources to bury their their loved ones. If anybody can send them, I know that there's already uh, folks uh, putting out their uh, GoFundMe to the families. Well, I encourage our listeners to look out for those websites. And again, I've been speaking with Lydia Camarillo, who serves as the president of the Southwest Voter Registration Education Project, a national nonprofit, nonpartisan organization based out of San Antonio, Texas. She plays a key role in developing the tactical strategies for the SVREP, nonpartisan voter registration, voter education, and get out the vote campaigns. And prior to joining SVREP, Camarillo served as the national director of the leadership development program for the Mexican American Legal Defense and Education Fund. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into how in order to get a driver's license, you must pass a test. But to own a weapon of war, you need nothing but the money the gun manufacturers are charging. And there's kids playing guns in the street. And one's pointing his tree branch at me. And so I put my hands up. I say enough is enough. If you walk away, I'll walk away. He shot me dead. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jonathan Metzel, Professor of Sociology and Psychiatry at Vanderbilt University and the director of its Center for Medicine, Health, and Society. He's the author of several books and a prominent expert on gun violence and mental illness. And his latest book is Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jonathan Metzel. I'm glad to be here. So, Jonathan, this is yet another atrocity, and unfortunately, in the United States, there have been more mass shootings than days in 2022. There have been at least 213 mass shootings have been recorded this year as of Tuesday, which is the 140th fourth day of the year. So, this is an American problem, clearly, Uh, but if you watch the press conference in Texas today with governor of Texas Abbott and his lieutenant governor and Ted Cruz and a bunch of officials. Uh, it was mostly covering their butts and sort of mealy mouth excuses, but no solutions whatsoever. So this is pretty getting pretty tiresome. We've seen this bad movie over and over and over again. I mean, on one hand, it's exhausting. And, and the exhausting part is, of course, you know, the, the trauma of it all, um, it, the trauma itself is, is I mean, just the, the toll, of course, on families and and uh, 
communities and this circle gets wider every time something like this happens it's just a ripple so we we're still mourning buffalo from last week and the there were more shootings across the country over the weekend and every one of these is just a, a trauma an exhausting trauma that that ripples outward families friends acquaintances networks professional networks um and so there's the exhaustion of the thing itself. I mean, just the amount of emotional work it takes to understand something like this, to be able to, to process that daily life of just sending your kids to school or going to the supermarket is a potentially fatal exercise is, is itself, itself exhausting. And then the other layer of exhaustion and anger and frustration is is the gridlock of our political system, and and you know usually governments exist to protect citizens, and the fact that our that our government is unable to do so that that there's so much polarization and discord, that itself is an, another la- layer, and th- that kind of exhaustion is really borne in by, I guess, frustration or resignation, um, and so it's. It's just so tragic on so many levels and so exhausting on so many levels. Well, that came into stark relief when uh, Beto O'Rourke interrupted the press conference today and, and demanded that they do something. And, of course, they all screamed at him and saying, you're out of your line, or you're out of line, etc. And then Abbott went back to talking about how we're hurt and we're very hurt and we're thinking about the people and this is a moment we're all very hurt. This is what happens. They talk about prayers and they talk about the pain and how we've got to help these people in this community get over their pain. How about helping the whole country by getting rid of military-style weapons in the hands of 18-year-old, clearly troubled uh, teenagers? I mean, that's not discussed. No wonder Beto O'Rourke is furious with them. And, of course, probably... um, Everybody thought he was out of line, at least the Texas officials standing there offering platitudes. That's what they kept saying. But, I mean, I, I, I'm on Beto's side. I think we've had enough of this stuff. And, say, and by the way, the president himself, Biden, said, you know, enough already. So do you think this is a momentary outrage and we'll be back to, back to normal, Jonathan, in terms of this dysfunction? The hard part about all this among so many layers of, of pain here is that we we have these conversations after mass shootings, and then we think, what will it take to stop the next mass shooting, which, of course, is what we want. There's so many mass shootings, but it's important to note that mass shootings are just a small fraction of the overall gun death and injury in this country, um, and much more, much more gun deaths comes from means that are much more predictable and preventable. Gun suicide, uh, homicide, partner violence, um, accidental shootings. And so it's just the, the part, among the many hard parts here. I mean, I, I agree that we should think, like, how can we never have what happened in Texas happen again? But there are so many things we could do to cut our gun death rate in half overnight that really don't have anything to do with the Second Amendment or gun rights versus gun control. I mean, they're just common sense things to do if we targeted the 43,000, 44,000 other gun deaths that aren't by mass shooting in this country. We could really make some real headway, but but 
but but those things never happen either, and they're and they're pretty straightforward solutions. It's not like there's a big mystery to it. And again, I'm speaking with Jonathan Metzel, who is a professor of sociology and psychiatry at Vanderbilt University and director of its Center for Medicine, Health, and Society. He's the author of several books and prominent expert on gun violence and mental illness. And his latest book is Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. Well, one of the things, though, that Abbott and these other officials, including the lieutenant governor of Texas, who's a former right-wing talk show host, they are shifting the blame away from guns and the availability of guns to mental illness, and that's what Abbott was stressing. It feels like a dodge because these problems aren't mutually exclusive, right? You have both ready access to guns and you also have untreated mental illness. Those are two really important issues, and they're two largely unrelated issues, unfortunately. I mean, this is kind of where my research comes in. Um, there's no doubt that when we look at the kind of individual case histories of individual mass shooters, there is often a history of mental illness. I mean, certainly people are very unsound who are committing these kind of acts. But the problem with that is, is several folds. Uh, one, of course, is there are many other factors that play into mass shootings. Most mass shootings are done by men. Overwhelmingly, they're done by white men, even though that wasn't the case in Texas. And so you never hear those those uh, factors me- measured in, um, and you know, it would be political suicide for somebody to say, "Okay, this is happening." So, we, what we need is more guns out of the hands of white men. That would be a career ender for any of these politicians. But that's an, another metric that actually plays out much more consistently. And so, number one, it's it's kind of cherry picked um, from from these histories. Um, number two, just because a shooter has mental illness doesn't mean that that's what caused them to commit their act. And when you look at the histories of what happens in mass shootings, there are so many other factors, um, past history of violence, access to firearms, gun laws in the state you live in. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And so if you're going to look at kind of causal factors, it's not like, oh, this person had depression and therefore that's what caused them. And to do that, and the third, of course, link to that is if you're just looking by mental illness um, diagnosis, there's no mental illness whose symptoms are harming someone else, let alone shooting someone else. I mean, depression is marked by social withdrawal. Schizophrenia, you have what are called negative symptoms. People withdraw from society. They have disordered thinking. Um, The list goes through the DSM. There's not a single diagnosis that you can say, oh, yeah, that that mental illness caused somebody to attack somebody. And very often people with mental illness withdraw from society. They're less likely to commit acts. And more often than not, they're the victims of violence, not the perpetrators of it. And so this mental illness narrative in so many ways, even though it makes emotional sense, is a, it's just a complete distraction based on stereotypes that really doesn't get us any closer to stopping these, these shootings. And the shooter just recently legally bought two rifles, two assault rifles, along with uh, 375 rounds of ammunition uh, just after his 18th birthday, uh, just only only a few weeks ago, as a matter of fact. Earlier, he had apparently cut up his face uh, with knives over and over again, claiming that, of course, a cat had scratched his face, but uh, apparently that was the real story. And he was in middle school and junior high. He was bullied for having a stutter and a strong lisp, according to his cousin Mia. Students mocked his speech impediment. 
uh, at middle school and he wasn't a very social person as a result of being bullied because of his stutter. But two months ago, he posted an Instagram story in which he was screaming at his mother and she, who was trying to kick him out of the house. And then multiple members of the family, including the neighbour, uh, Ruben Flores, said Ramos's mother used drugs, and that was a contributing factor to the unstable home life. And apparently, as Ramos grew older, these problems at home became more and more acute, again, according to the neighbours, uh, particularly Flores. And Flores described having police at the house and witnessing altercations between Ramos and his mother that the police had to come and deal with. So when they said at the press conference there was no criminal record or any record, there's probably a juvenile record, right? He was known to the police because they came they came to the house on a number of occasions because of blow-ups between Ramos and his mother. So there's stuff on the record, isn't there, Jonathan, that would suggest that maybe at least he should have been visited by a social worker. Well, I mean, again, I, I don't know. I haven't seen the case, and, and so I, I really I'm not sure. I can I can say with some confidence that um, I mean, as again, this sounds like a horrific, troubled person and a, and a, a t- really tough situation. Um, but but again, I don't think that explains fully why somebody would commit a mass shooting. Um, many people have those kind of situations and don't go on to to commit mass shootings. And so certainly there there are stories in every one of these shootings about troubled backgrounds, missed missed signs. Um, but uh, but but we tell those stories afterwards and just think, you know, people have been encountering this person for 18 years. Um, and, and so it's really just after the fact that we tell those stories, which, again, are important because it's important to understand why somebody would do something like this. But there's nothing predictive about an individual case history, unfortunately. Um, again, I could just say that for everybody who fits certain psychological criteria, there'll be 10,000 people who have the same psychological profile who don't go on to mass murder other people. And so really, when you talk about the best ways to stop mass shootings and gun violence more broadly, you have to think about demographics. Um, you know, I, I'm a strong believer that people between 18 and 21, for example, shouldn't have access to guns. We should have the legal carry age be 21, not 18, because over 40% of the shootings are, are committed by, by younger people. And yet state after state, they're lowering the age of, of open and concealed carry to 18 with no training and no background. And so age is important. Social networks are important. Shootings often happen within, within social networks. Past history of violence is often a trigger. Um, but again, all these factors and others, substance abuse is another. Um, all these factors only matter if you have a lever through which you can say, oh, this person's high risk, and then do something about it. The other part here is, like, people can't do anything in a place like Texas because there's no regulating who can get a gun or who can carry a gun. So even if you identify these factors, the, the limitations on what people can do is, is, is small. So it's, it's multifactorial. It's not a mystery, but, but, but I, I would strongly push back on this individual mess, mental illness narrative. It's, it's, it's just fake. But that wasn't really the threshold that I was f- focusing on. You know, it, it wasn't linking mental illness to mass shooting. I'm, I'm linking mental illness to the availability of guns. 
And shouldn't there right. be some threshold there that makes sense? Well, again, there's just not a test, right? In other words, I mean, it makes emotional sense when you look at these mass shootings. Um, but, but again, like if you're a bad driver, you can't get a car and get a driver's license. And um, people in a certain age group and actuarial tables for insurance companies are higher risk than other people. I mean, there's all these ways we assess risk in our society having to do with lots of different factors. Again, I, I guess the point is, even though it makes emotional sense, mental illness is by itself, it's not linked statistically to gun violence. And so there's no depression test or schizophrenia test that somebody's going to give somebody that then says, oh, you shouldn't have a gun. There are many other factors that are much more more predictive and, uh, uh, you know, um, so, so I would say it's one of many factors, but really we should be much more closely monitoring and assessing people. But mental illness, again, by itself is not going to give a result. I mean, in New York, they tried that. and It just ended up just dramatic over surveillance of people on databases. And so it's, it's not the best approach, I would say, by itself. And mentally ill people are not prone to violence. That is, there's, no, there's no statistical evidence of that, right? Not, not, in, not, along, not along the lines that, we're, um, that we would want it to be. Right. You know, there's debates about this, but in general, not, yeah. But when Governor Abbott was asked the question about 18-year-olds being able to buy assault rifles, he said, oh, no, you know, 18-year-olds have been able to buy, buy long rifles in the state of Texas for the last 60 or 100 years. I can't remember. But he dodged the question. <laughs> We're not talking about long rifles to shoot rabbits. We're talking about yeah. military-style assault rifles. So, and, and, also, and also permit laws have been relaxed and the kind of guns, handguns and semi-automatic guns. So he definitely dodged the question. I mean, in Tennessee, we just in April, lowered the age of permitless carry to 18 for, for handguns and long guns. So it, it's, 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 it's a disingenuous answer. And why do you think they're doing this? Are they doing it at the behest of the gun manufacturers who are opening up a, more, a big market? Because all these kids, you know, today look at these video games, which are nothing but shooting and blowing people apart and blood and guts splattering everywhere. And obviously... the <laughs> You were saying earlier, Jonathan, that at least be 21 and a little bit more seasoned and sober than being... Mm -hmm. No, I, I think it's all of, all of those factors. I mean, it's really, I mean, again, ultimately, the answer to this is, if we ever get an answer, is going to be people coming together across political divides uh, to um, to solve a, a shared problem to common humanity, which which is not what, what's happening. So until we have some political middle ground... Um, I think I think we're just going to be keeping having these conversations. So, just in closing, what kind of background check questions would you recommend? Because clearly, the background check. Well, and, and look at the shooting rates in 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 states that have, you know, compare Connecticut to Texas in terms of shooting rates, and and so it's not rocket science. You know, you can you could import. The strategies that work in states that have low shootings um, make it make there be any kind of process, as opposed to constitutional carry, any kind of process that that regu that kind of assesses people. Um, I mean, just think about it like a driver's license. You have to take a test, and you have to get that renewed. And right. I mean, it, you know, we do this for all other kinds of things. And so, I don't think 
I don't think the answer is difficult. I just think our ability to implement it feels impossible. Well, Jonathan Messel, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Let's please keep talking. It's so important. And again, I've been speaking with Jonathan Metzel, who's a professor of sociology and psychiatry at Vanderbilt University and director of its Center for Medicine, Health and Society. He's the author of several books and a prominent expert on gun violence and mental illness. And his latest book is Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. We take a brief station break. We're back examining the highly partisan politics of the southern border and the Biden administration's policy of trying to deal with the problem of immigration from Central America at its roots. He changed his clothes and shined his boots and combed his dark hair down. And his mother cried as he walked out. Don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to town. He laughed and kissed his mom and said, you're Billy Joe's a man. I can... Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Joan Marie Burt, who's a senior fellow at the Washington Office for Latin America and a professor of political science and Latin American studies at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, who has published widely on political violence, state-society relations, human rights, and transitional justice in Latin America, a research consultant for the Open Society Justice Initiative. She writes about war crimes, prosecutions in Guatemala for International Justice Monitor, and is the author of Silencing Civil Society, Political Violence, and the Authoritarian State in Peru. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joan Marie Burt. Hi, Ian. It's great to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us. And here, of course, in the United States, we're still reeling from yet another school massacre, this time not far from the Mexican border in uh, a town outside of uh, San Antonio. And obviously the border issue is still festering and it's a difficult issue for Biden and a lot of Democrats. I think in a way there's a certain amount of relief at the federal judge who blocked lifting uh, restrictions brought about at the border over COVID, which are denying entry or at least on the basis of those seeking asylum in the United States. So I think that daily total is about 8,000, and the expectation is that if that were lifted, it would maybe double or triple that amount. How much from your work in Central America is this the work of coyotes in, in attracting people, saying that, you know, you can come to the United States because Biden will let you in? Is that... Is that what's happening? Well, I think any analysis of migration um, tries to look at what analysts call the push factors and the pull factors, right? So there may be factors that are attracting people to come to the United States, whether it's the lure of better paying jobs, more opportunities, or someone offering to help you along, um, the promise that the government's going to let you in, you know, whether those are realistic or not. And then there's the push factors, which I think is, even though the Biden administration has really tried to focus on what they call the root causes of migration, principally in Central America, I think in general, folks here don't quite grasp what that means, how 
the existence of um, closed political systems where corruption, uh, drug trafficking, and other illegal economies um, are really just closing off possibilities, generating climates of fear. Um, Gang violence is also another big element of that. And that's sort of the driving factor. That's the push fat, one of the key push factors. Obviously, poverty and inequality is also part of that. But Central America has long been a very poor region. Um, and we see kind of upswings in migration at a moment in which it's not just a problem of poverty or even rising poverty, but of rising corruption and governments just, you know, unwilling, incapable of addressing the problem of corruption, the problem of um, illicit economies, the problem of, you know, criminal and, and, and uh, criminal, criminal violence, gang violence and so forth. So I think that while, you know, certainly there may be some of these pull factors at play, I think what's really at play and what we really are failing to understand and address from a policy perspective are these push factors. I think I do think that the Biden administration continues to be sort of trapped in this discourse that was it's not an it wasn't a new discourse invented by the Trump administration, but it was certainly elevated to a level of, you know, xenophobia and paranoia about migration. And um, I think the Biden administration has, you know, not successfully pushed back enough on that narrative. Um, if you look at polls, I think a lot of it, well, you know, clearly there are Americans who don't like migrants who have, you know, racist assumptions about Latino, Latinx people and so forth. But the vast majority of Americans are quite fine with um, migration, understand that we are a country of migrants um, and aren't supportive of these very harsh policies like t Title 42 and others that are causing so much pain uh, along the border. Um, but somehow the administration, the Biden administration has not quite figured that out. I think they're driven more by a politics of fear. And, and that fear is about their own, you know, the, the midterm elections and their own electoral prospects. But if they don't really kind of reimagine the narrative and, you know, help Americans understand why this is happening, why allowing migrants might be a good thing <laughs> um, about why um, not allowing people to apply for asylum, which is an international obligation. It's part of our own legal codes, why that is a bad thing. You know, we're not going to, they're not going to be able to get out of the kind of the straitjacket that they find themselves in. And in terms of the Biden administration's policy of of going after the root causes of immigration being being poverty and instability, gangs, corruption. There's a sort of mixed bag there, isn't there? I mean, at least the crook that was running Honduras, Hernandez, has been extradited to the United States as a major drug trafficker. That's a win there. Yes, but but, but it's a loss in Af in Guatemala, which you're very familiar with, because the the president down there, who's clearly a crook. He just reappointed uh, this crooked attorney general, Consuela Porras, and uh, this has outraged the State Department. She's not, and her husband are on the list of corrupt and undemocratic actors uh, banned from the United States. So it would seem that uh, Guatemala's president, Alejandro Giamete, is being defiant here. 
isn't he? He's just this is thumbing the nose of the United States. And no, but the U.S. has also kind of been a little ambiguous in its policy towards towards Guatemala and the Gemate government. I think um, what I've heard from U.S. government officials, high level officials in the State Department, is that they were really focusing on um, the Attorney General Consuelo Porras. They identified her as a corrupt actor who was facilitating the sort of the breakup of this very very um, strong and successful anti-corruption unit within the attorney general's office. And they were tr- you know, trying to focus on her and, and say that Yamate was not the problem. And I think they were hopeful that Yamate was not going to reappoint her, that he would reappoint someone, he would appoint someone else. And then they could sort of go back to business as usual. And that is fund- a fundamentally flawed way of understanding what's happening in Guatemala. Yamate he did not appoint Consuelo Porras. She was appointed by the, the previous government, but she has been extremely functional to the Yamate government. And while he may have wanted to appoint uh, another attorney general, uh, she also has the goods on him. I mean, he's been, her attorney, her office was investigating him for a number of corrupt activities, which is one of the reasons why uh, they started going after the head of that anti-corruption unit, the FESI, Juan Francisco Sandoval, who is now living here in exile in the United States. Um, so, she, you know, the, the U.S. really had to under, has to understand that Yamate and Consuelo Porras were kind of hand in glove working together to maintain a corrupt system and to keep themselves both in power. So I think that the, the strategy to kind of focus on on Consuelo Porras and and kind of let Yamate off the hook was fundamentally flawed. And I mean, now they're, it's sort of re- we're reaping what we sowed because now we're stuck with her for another four years. And 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 what have we done? Okay, we've we've it, it increased the sanctions against her, but so far there's been no sanctions that we know of against Yamate or broader sanctions against his government. Um, maybe those in there those are in the works, but as of now, it's been a week we haven't. It's been over a week, um, and all we have seen are the increased sanctions against her. So it's a fundamentally flawed problem. The problem is not a single individual or even a handful of individuals. It's a system, right, that has um, been put in place to essentially dismantle all the good that was done in Guatemala over the past decade, thanks in large part to the International Commission Against Corruption in Guatemala, the CCIG, a UN-sponsored body that was put in place in 2007 precisely to deal with the the, the massive criminal organi- and organized crime structures that were strangling Guatemala's, you know, very fragile uh, post-war democracy. And they, they had made some real achievements in not only um, uh, kind of establishing Establishing a more functional rule of law, but really going after some of those uh, very powerful corrupt actors. I mean, everyone points to in 2015 how a CC uh, investigation alongside the work of the public ministry led to the um, uh, demission and then arrest of the former president, Otto Perez Molina, and his vice president, as well as dozens of other government officials who'd been engaged in massive corruptions, you know 
holding public while holding public office. That's just one of many, many numerous examples of the CC's success in in dismantling some of these um, nefarious corruption networks. And there was a concerted effort by old guard military officials, economic elites who felt threatened by the CC uh, operations and by conservative politicians who decided that they needed to roll this all back, get rid of the CC and reestablish their control over the justice sector. And that's what they've done really quite successfully over the last couple of years. So we've seen this dramatic rollback um, and what people in, in Guatemala refer to as the co-optation of the state by these corrupt networks. So really, Yamate controls the entire system at this point. He controls the Congress. He controls the constitutional court. He controls, for the most part, um, the justice sector. He, you know, Consuelo Porras is his faithful ally, though. Clearly, she has a few tricks up her sleeves in case he, you know, in case he did intend to get rid of her. Um, and she prevailed. Um, but so that's the bigger problem is that there is this entire, the entire system has been taken over by these corrupt actors. And to, to pretend that it's just one individual or a handful of individuals is to miss the point entirely. So let's turn then to El Salvador, the yeah. third Central American country from which people are fleeing north to the United States. Trump on Sunday, using his truth social platform, which is not doing very well, needless to say, he, Trump, retweeted a tweet for the Salvadorian president, uh, Bukele, uh, who's also close to Trump. And this is what Bukele had written, and which Trump had retweeted, talking about the United States. Something so big and powerful can't be destroyed so quickly unless the enemy comes from within. And then Trump, he then added a little, his message to the end of that retweet of from Bukele saying two words, civil war. And this is alarming and it's alarmed some people uh, here in the United States. And of course, Trump has, has had some setbacks in his kingmaking activities. So what's the relationship between Trump and Bukele? Because Bukele is a nut job as long, along with being an authoritarian He's tried to turn the country into a, the, a haven for Bitcoin and uh, cryptocurrencies have just taken a massive dive. And my understanding is that El Salvador may have to default on its debt. You know, he, I mean, can I, you know, to call him a nut job, there are certainly things about him that, that appear to be absolutely insane. But he's also very shrewd. He is a shrewd communicator and he has his, you know, his he's strategic in his own way, not unlike Trump, who I think he models himself on and emulates, right? Um, and, you know, Bukele uh, was elected into office. He's extremely popular in El Salvador to this day, despite the fact, as you said, he's sort of run the economy into the ground. And, and most Salvadorans have not quite bought into his whole plan for converting the economy to Bitcoin, which is, as you said, on the face of it, absurd. But there's a logic behind that, right? Because Bitcoin, behind Bitcoin, you can engage in a lot of illicit activities. So my understanding, um, not being an expert in El Salvador, but my understanding is that a lot of what's going on behind the scenes in terms of Bitcoin is illicit economies, right? And El Salvador, just like Guatemala, just like Honduras, is a haven of many illicit economies. Drug trafficking is one of them, but there are many others. 
Um, and and one of the things that Bukele did, which is I think one of the things that Trump would have aspired to do, was he literally has taken over control of the legislature through elections. He tried to do it through the army and failed uh, a year before. And then last year, his party won midterm elections. And so his party controls the legislature. So he, for all, all intents and purposes, controls the the the, the, uh, the legislative branch. And he kicked out uh, tons of judges um, and has uh, you know apparently been putting in place judges who are you know, loyal to him. So he's in, in a way also established control over the judiciary. It, honestly, it reminds me of what Alberto Fujimori did in Peru after he carried out a coup in 1992. He shut down Congress. He took over the uh, the um, the judiciary. He he um, suspended the constitution with the backing of the military and then installed an authoritarian system. And Bukele has done sort of the same thing, only he really didn't need a coup to do it because he's so popular and because people are so fed up with the existing uh, two-party system that really, you know, 25 years after the end of the war, um, and both were in power for different periods of time, neither of them really had proven able or, or willing to deal with, you know, the just utter poverty um, massive homicide levels. I mean, El Salvador today, in, in general, in the post-war era, has had higher levels of homicide than it did during the 12-year civil war, which is you know, really alarming and shows how bad the violence is. Um, and I and I I think one, you know, one of the reasons people flee El Salvador is in part it's the the, the broader this broader problem of corruption and authoritarianism, but it's also the gang violence. Um, and there was a lot of hope when, you know, the last year or so, violence uh, numbers started going down, and it was the result of an agreement that the Bukele administration had made with the gang members. And then apparently it all broke down and massacres, gang massacres started spreading up across the country because the gang members or the gang leadership was displeased with the way uh, the administration was dealing with the gang situation. And then the administration responded with massive arrests. There have been literally tens of thousands of people arbitrarily detained, put into already overcrowded prisons. Um, you see, if you look at the images from the nightly news, you see mothers and family members standing outside the doors of the prisons trying to get information about their loved ones who've been arbitrarily detained. The government, the Bukele's had a very punitive approach. He says, we're going to reduce the, you know, the amount of food that we're going to give them and so on and so forth. And we're going to keep, you know, this, the emergency uh, measures in place so that we can keep arresting people, you know, against, you know, all due process. Um, so it's not only that El Salvador is a very poor country, that there are not a lot, a lot of opportunities, that there's gang violence, but now you have this additional problem of, you know, extremely harsh draconian government measures pr purportedly to deal with gang violence, but really more like a retaliatory measure um, because the gangs are not doing his bidding. So it's a very volatile situation. Right. Um, well, well, just in the last minute, though, I wanted to bring it back to what the U.S. can actually do and the Biden administration with this policy of trying to deal with the root causes of migration from Central America obviously as long as the american people 
consume illicit drugs, you can't blame these countries for being in the drug business. So we have a lot to answer for. But is there any solution here? Is there anything that the Biden administration can do? Well, I mean, I think that um, I think that the root causes strategy in principle is a good one, but it has to be consistent. It has to be applied consistently. You can't pretend that, for example, as in the case of Guatemala, you can't pretend that the president is not corrupt. You cannot engage with him as if he were, you know, a democratically uh, a, a president who was operating uh, democratically. He was democratically elected, but I don't think he's a Democrat. I think he's, uh, on the contrary, he's carried out a series of authoritarian measures. He's um, and clearly he's involved in a number of uh, uh, corrupt uh, uh, schemes. So to pretend, right? Um, that he's our guy in Central America is is fundamentally flawed. So that's one one thing. There has to be more consistency and there has to be more clarity. I think that we sent a lot of mixed messages. So, for example, last year, I don't know if you remember this, there was a summit on democracy that the U, that the Biden administration was convening back in, in uh, December. And they didn't invite President Giamatte of Guatemala because they're under their view, he was not democratic and he was engaged in corruption. And, and you know, civil society groups applauded this decision and it upset Giamatte greatly. So what did Giamatte do? He came to Washington and he actually did a little speaking tour. He went to the Heritage Foundation. He went to the family. There's a, this conservative uh, pro-life family foundation. I forget the name of it. And he gave uh, focus a, on the family. Yes, right. He gave a series of speeches, in fact, very critical of the Biden administration. And then he proceeded to request a meeting with the Biden administration. And for some un, un, inexplicable reason, the, um, the, uh, the, the Biden White House accepted, agreed to meet with Yamate. So after, after walking around being so hypercritical, he walks into the National Security Council and meets with top White House officials completely undermining the message that we're not dealing with you because you are a corrupt government. Well, I thank you for joining us and giving us a, a very thorough briefing on what's happening in Central America and how it's impacting the southern border. Oh, I appreciate it's, it. It's been my pleasure, Ian. Take care. Thanks for having me. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Joe Marie Burt, who is a senior fellow at the Washington Office for Latin America and a professor of political science and Latin American studies at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, who has published widely on political violence, state society relations, human rights, and transitional justice in Latin America. And she's a research consultant to the Open Society's Justice Initiative and writes about war crimes prosecutions in Guatemala for the International Justice Monitor. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate 
or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.